Hey, tongue-tied surgeon here. Before this episode begins, I just want to wish everyone a happy Diwali. And of course, this episode is um, expressing some of my views about fidelity, which are not very positive, I must say. Um, but that doesn't say that there's anything wrong with the concept of fidelity or monogamy. You do you. Your dating life is yours. Please do not let my views infringe upon yours. And um, I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm just going to cue the fucking... I've been recently reading a lot about the O.J. Simpson case for academic reasons. Uh, Why do I do anything these days? It's always for academic reasons. And one of the words that I keep hearing or coming across in every press description of this case is the trial of the century. The reason these words are used to describe this case is very specific. It's because it's an idiomatic phrase that gets used to describe very well-known court cases. For example... Uh, the trial of Harry Thaw was also described as a trial of the century back in that time, I think 1906, when the murder of Stanford White had happened. It's a very well-known case. I do intend to cover it eventually. But it, when it comes to sensationalism about a case, about just these popular figures being involved in crimes and the entire nation or all of known world is talking about it, sort of happens very very repeatedly everywhere now of course these are american cases that i've cited so far so it just made me think what is the equivalent of this case in india what was the last time everybody kept talking about a case and everybody knows about it i've expressed my interest in cases like this before when we talked about the abhyankar joshi murder case in episode 17 i think And the other urban legends that we've discussed, including the Santosh Mani case in Pune. I just wanted to cover the most popular Mumbai case and the most aggressively Bombay case to have ever existed in the legal history of this country. Um, I know know a lot of city people. I know a lot of urban people because like I've lived in a city for the last five years of my life, which is essentially all of my adulthood. Most of them have no idea the kind of intrigue that a city brings to people who don't live in them. I am not making this up. There is a certain amount of glamour and a certain amount of fear of missing out. I don't know what word to use, but it's a fear of missing out to attaching identity to a city. And I think a part of it is because cultural zeitgeists are built in the city. Most stories are told in Delhi, Mumbai, Pune, Bangalore, Kolkata, Chennai, a place where everybody knows is a is an urban settlement a place where it's easy to get lost just as easy it is to get recognized and the prime example of one such case which was the talk of the town when it was happening and a case that india never forgot to keep talking about for the rest of its history up post independence is km nanavati versus the state of maharashtra of course most of you know this is the case we're going to be talking about because you had the common sense of reading the title i want to spend some time just setting up the scene and like sort of spending some time trying to understand why this case hits so hard and what is so intriguing about the time and place that it takes place in and the people involved of course and how i want to do that is by taking a tiny tangent into a direction where i explain some of the cultural monuments which i think are important and are sort of these places of urban history in forms of commercial centers like restaurants or malls or streets uh, for that matter The reason some of these cafes have the reputations that they do uh, in, say, South Bombay 
is not only because their food has a consistent taste and of course people like something that has lasted longer than they have but also because there is a certain sense of i want to say experience that it comes from where they've witnessed gentrification of a city and they've stayed constants in a place that has been populated by more and more people and has gotten more and more competitive and the case that we're talking about is in a time and place where this gentrification was just starting and the constants were just being established in the city this was 1959's post colonial bombay a place where communities were just realizing how important a port they had actually settled on and the kind of money there was to be made and the kind of cultural centers and monuments they were going to be forming around themselves in the form of something as mundane as a restaurant or a or a theater for that matter something that didn't exist in the country elsewhere or even if it did it was in other urban places which were doing the same thing and this story involved three people who were just witnesses of their surroundings for all lack of words and the story starts when silvia nanavati a british lady married to a indian commander of the navy admits to him on breakfast on april 27th 1959 that she had been having an affair with a family friend named prema huja subsequently that day's afternoon kavas manaksha nanavati dropped his wife and children to a cinema hall went to ins mysore which was docked in the harbor picked up one service revolver around with six bullets and went to pedder road to see prema huja who was not there incidentally and he was guided to the residence of prema huja where he was kavas asked prema huja if he intended to marry selvia and keep the children and prema huja responded probably nonchalantly or not realizing the anger of the wronged husband that he doesn't marry every woman he sleeps with and kavas nanamati shot the man point black three bullets and then walked out of there after committing the crime he was not able to find a police station in the locality so he went to the provost marshal of the western navy and surrendered himself and confessed to the crime the provost marshal of course advised nanavati to go to the commissioner of police and surrender himself which he subsequently did if that sounds like a plot for a great legal drama you're not wrong there that's what everybody thought ever since this case has come up in 1963 ye raaste hai pyar ke a hindi movie was made on the basic facts of this case then again in 1973 this the facts of this case were used to create another movie called achanak and 2016 another movie called rustam was made again based on the facts of this case and then again verdict state versus nanavati was a series started by alt balaji with sumit vyas and saurabh shukla as stars in this in this series about the same case and the media took to the story instantly to sensationalize it for everyone involved and make it the talk of the town to the talk of the country over the procession of the trial the impact of this case on the media coverage is clear in the blitz magazine cover that i've put on the thumbnail for this episode three bullets that shook the nation and a triangle that represents km nanavati prem ahuja and silvia nanavati all on like the front page and that was the sensationalism with which each part of this trial was covered what's even more interesting about this is that everyone involved with this trial went on to be 
some of the most dramatically pivotal and important characters in the legal history of India as it stands today. One of the lead prosecutors representing the state of Maharashtra in this case was Y. Chandrachud, who went on to be the Chief Justice of India eventually and is the father of D.Y. Chandrachud, the judge who has claimed his fame from the K. Puttaswamy vs. Union of India judgment, which ruled in the right of privacy. And it goes without saying, D.Y. Chandrachud has since become the heartthrob of every liberal law student. Kalakot, if you're listening, this is about you. <laughs> but, of course, you capture an emo- emotion all of us feel. So, um, good job, I guess. Moving on and getting back to the Nanavati case, the man representing the defense in this case was Karl Kandalawala, who went on to represent Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister of India in the Shah Commission case. And the family of the victim, Prem Ahuja, was represented by Ram Jait Malani, who I don't think I need to specially introduce to any Indian alive. It is an understatement to say that Mr. Jait Malani was an overachiever, The state had to make an exception for this man to start practice at 18 because he finished his LLB at the age of 17 and it was way too much waste of time for him to wait to the age of 21 to start practice. And after this case, he went on to be the chairperson of the Bar Council of India and be in the Rajya Sabha twice, maybe. The picture I'm trying to paint is that the stakes are high and some famous names are involved. And this case sort of went on to create a snowball effect that catalyzed the effect of having no jury in Indian legal system. And don't get me wrong, it's not a cause-effect relationship between having no jury system in India now and um, this case being decided the way it was. But it was definitely a catalyzing thing in reaching that decision for the Indian judiciary. For example, the 1973 Law Commission of India report states that this case was one of the examples why the jury is not a good idea in India and the dispassionate judge was then preferred as the as the overseer of the trial as well as the decider in this case. But in 1959, you had to have a jury. There was a nine-member jury which was supposed to be convinced by the defense or the prosecution in this case. Now, let's understand the cultural aspects in this. I don't think the idea of fidelity is any less sacred to this day. The amount of dhoka.mov or betrayal.mp4 videos that I've seen from TikTok and Vine combined is not less. So I'm assuming fidelity is a genuinely prevalent concept even today in our culture. Imagine how much more stringent it was in 1959. Not to mention... K.M. Nanavati was a decorated soldier and the promise of fidelity which was given to him by his wife was broken. So he was clearly the wronged party in the eyes of every person in that courtroom. Not to mention what Prem Ahuja did was actually even legally wrong. I know I am obsessive when it comes to talking about this issue, but section 498 of the IPC actually stated that sleeping with another man's wife without the consent of that man was actually considered a crime of adultery in that time, till 2018, to be fair. And on the other hand, a man had literally died because of the direct actions of this soldier. To make matters even more emotionally complicated for the jury and the public, Sylvia Nanavati, when taken on the stand, was not only shamed and mischaracterized by the opposing counsel, but also 
said that she understood the decisions and actions of her husband. The prosecution, of course, argued that K.M. Nanavati is a murderer and he has killed Prem Ahuja in cold blood and he should be jailed under Section 300-304, namely culpable homicide amounting to murder and not amounting to murder together. And the defense put up a case that said that it was grave and sudden provocation which led to the death of Prem Ahuja had he not said so nonchalantly that he would not accept the wife and children of Mr. Nanavati, he would have not been killed. But the Sessions Court jury was swayed by its own morality and they decided in an 8-1 to majority that K.M. Nanavati was free to go and not guilty of any crime in this case. The dissenting opinion in that case was of one juror named Reginald Pierce who said that he was an honourable man but he was a murderer nonetheless. The judge being the judicial mind and having procedural autonomy over this entire procedure called the jury's statement to be perverse and referred the case to the High Court of Maharashtra. The High Court of Maharashtra at this point had decided this case on the claim of the defence. Basically, they were evaluating whether it was grave and sudden provocation that led to the death of Prem Ahuja. The point of contention, however, being that if it in fact was not the plan of Mr. Nanavati to kill Prem Ahuja, how did he first go to a place where he knew he could secure a firearm, take that firearm, load it up and then go to Mr. Prem Ahuja? It seems a little preconceived that an instrument of death is introduced by Mr. Nanavati in that situation, which is how grave and sudden provocation is read to this day. And any law students who are listening to this and studying law of evidence this semester, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to be patronizing. Back to the case. K.M. Nanavati, of course, was found guilty in this case and um, sentenced to jail, like rigorous imprisonment, by the Maharashtra High Court. K.M. Nanavati's counsel filed for an appeal in the Supreme Court and the governor of Maharashtra at the time gave him a temporary pardon to allow him to file an appeal in the Supreme Court as fast as he did. This, of course, led to the famous citation that we still do in legal studying that actually set the precedent of under what circumstances can a governor give temporary pardon when the matter that is being discussed is still subsidized or being discussed by the court. And this involved politics to the degree that the matter got communal. Not to say the matter was not communal from the beginning. Prem Ahuja was a Sindhi businessman and Kavas Nanavati was a Parsi gentleman who was serving in the armed forces. But both of them are prominent business communities settled mostly on the western coast, predominantly in Mumbai and Pune. And the Parsi community would be genuinely angry if Kavas Nanavati was not given a pardon at this point. But giving him pardon would mean angering the Sindhi community in Mumbai. And beyond all of this was, of course, the issue of the character assassination and the name dragged through mud of Mrs. Sylvia Nanavati. The discussions about whom in and outside of courtroom more and more resembled that of commodity, which was genuinely distasteful to go through during the research of this podcast. And if there is one thing clear throughout the research of this podcast is that um, not the most shining moment for gender rights in judicial history of India. Finally, 
around the time when the matter was settled and the Supreme Court had denied the appeal and carried on the sentence of the Maharashtra High Court, the matter was getting even more tense and there was a shift in governmental appointments at this time. The governor of Maharashtra had changed and Vijayalakshmi Pandit, the first female governor of Maharashtra, had taken over the office. And she saw the communal tensions that this case has, had created between the Sindhi community and the Parsi community within Mumbai itself. And she found a way to pacify both sides when a mercy petition was filed to her by Bhai Pratap, a Sindhi businessman and an Indian freedom fighter who had been charged with the crime of misusing imported goods. The infraction was minor and of course given his role in the freedom struggle against the British with the Indian National Congress meant that a mercy petition had to be accepted. She used this opportunity to also sign the mercy petition of K.M. Nanavati and both of them were set free on the same day in 1963. Three months after being set free, K.M. Nanavati and the entire family with the wife and kids moved to Canada and never came back. Of course, the largest legal conversation that was had after this case was the lack of the judicial mind in the jury. And the jury was dissolved and now we have a calm and impartial judge at both the factual courts, which is the Sessions Court, and in the High Courts as well. However, that kind of concentration in the judicial hands sort of makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm just uncomfortable with concentration of power, especially when that concentration of power can put people in charge that can say things like, no Indian woman of good character would sleep after being raped which is an actual thing that a, uh, that a judge in Karnataka High Court has said. And it's not like we have any dearth of legal scholars or academicians in this country. A, a special jury pool can be created out of just law graduates who understand the judicial language. And most importantly, these allegations which are very sensitive of corruption against judges can be fought by creating a jury of, say... 10 people from a pool of just academicians from the legal background. I don't think there is a lot wrong with that. And I think I can quote Advocate Hedge, who was a Supreme Court advocate. I don't remember if he's still practicing. He spoke in an interview and he said that the jury system would of course bring back a very important time frame because keeping the jury away from the media is a huge task which would put a time restriction on delivery of justice. So I think I'm pro-jury, but I don't know. I'm I'm kind of pro-jury just because it represents the people and more participation in jury and makes the entire process more accessible. But also I know how capable Indian communities are of making a matter communal. So I'm on the fence with that one. But let me know what you think about the jury system. DM me on Instagram if you're listening to this on Spotify. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please leave a comment down below and I'll respond probably. I don't know. But that was the case of KM Nanavati versus the state of Maharashtra. Alright, that's all I have for you this week. If you want the citation, the legal citation for this case, it's in the description of this episode. So you can go find it there, especially if you're a student. In any case, if you liked the episode, please uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, no matter which platform you're on listening to this. Uh, it really helps out gauging the audience of this podcast. 
If you really like the episode, please go to Patreon and support Deep Fried Neurons because it helps out creating content and keeps me motivated and, you know, pays for expenses and whatnot. And uh, if you fancy a t-shirt or something like that, please go check out merch uh, from the link down in the description or go to the Instagram and check it out there, whichever way you prefer. Thank you for checking out and spending your time here. Bye.